Good morning. Take your uh, Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to continue our study in the book of Ephesians. You know, in the New Testament, there are over a thousand commandments that we as Christians are called to follow and to obey. And I wonder, even as I say that, when you think about all the commandments in Scripture, I wonder what kind of feelings you have, or I wonder what your response is to that in your mind. If, if the feeling that you feel is that of like burdensome feelings, uh, then what I would say is that one of two ways you're thinking about the commandments of God's Word, you're thinking about uh, those things in a wrong way or incorrect way. One of two ways. All right, here's one incorrect way we view the commandments of God. All right, is when people see them as some kind of religious ladder that kind of God let down out of heaven and basically says there's the commandments that you follow, each rung on the ladder is a commandment. Do your best throughout life to follow and obey these commandments. And if at the end of life you've climbed high enough, I'll think about letting you get into heaven. That, of course, is an incorrect way to view the commandments of God. Galatians 3 corrects that. helps us understand that the primary purpose of commandments, the commandments of God, the primary purpose of the law is to serve as a schoolmaster in our life, teaching us that we don't have what it takes to climb the ladder. The primary purpose of the law of God, the primary purpose of the commandments in God's word is to reveal to us our need for a savior, our need for someone. It's Jesus, God putting on flesh to come down to us to live the life that we can't live, to follow the commandments of God perfectly and then to die in our place. That's what it's supposed to reveal to us. But there's a second incorrect way to view uh, the law of God. And this is a mistake we can even make and drift into thinking about uh, wrongly even after we come to Christ. We can, drift back into, we can drift back into the wrong thinking of thinking about all these lists of these do's and don'ts in God's Word as kind of things that kind of take the fun out of life a little bit. Right? Kind of, you know, maybe you view God's commands that way, that they're, they're kind of rules that restrict pleasure and kill joy. However, as believers, here's the correct way we should view the commands of God. And this is what I want you to think about as we move really through the rest of this study. Anytime we see, as a Christian, a command in the New Testament where God says, don't do this, what we should hear is the loving voice of our Heavenly Father saying, don't do this so you don't get hurt. Anytime we see the command, do this, we should hear His loving voice also saying, do this and help yourself. You know, when I was, when my kids were younger, and some of you have kids in this uh, stage of life, the power wheel stage, where they had a little power wheel at the house or a grandparent's house, and they ride it around a little car, ride it around the yard or in the driveway. When my kids were little, uh, they had power wheels, and we had a rule at our house that you're not allowed to leave the cul-de-sac with your power wheel. And one of my kids in particular, I can think of one time, he, was, he asked uh, if he could take his power wheel out on the real road. Right, And what he meant was Highway 17. That's what he was talking about. right? And did I let him do that? Of course not. Now, why did I not allow him to do that? Was, was that because I wanted to rob him of the joy and the pleasure and the thrill of driving that little car out in 60 mile an hour traffic? No, it was because I love him. I gave him that rule and those boundaries because I love him and so that he can enjoy life without experiencing the danger on the other side of that boundary. And God does the exact same thing for us. He gives us the law, He gives us His commandments, and He gives us these boundaries that lead to us enjoying life. The reason I bring that up is because here as we make a turn in chapter 5, even in these first 20 verses, you're going to see 15 commandments that are laid before us 
this morning. Beyond that, you're going to see dozens and dozens of more commandments and imperatives through the rest of this letter that we're expected to obey because of who we now are in Christ Jesus. And for the rest of this letter, I really want us to remember anytime we come across a don't do this, a don't, that we see that and hear God's voice as Him desiring to help us. Hey, I want to help you avoid the hardships of this broken world. I want to help you. And anytime we see the do's, the do commandments, it's him leading us to experience a joy-filled life, an abundant life. So let's keep that in mind as we read this passage together. Stand with your Bibles open. I'll begin to read in verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 18 this morning. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God or Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is the shameful, or it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light therefore awake old sleeper and arise from the dead and christ will shine on you look carefully then how you walk not as unwise but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil therefore do not be foolish but understand the will of the what the will of the lord is and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the spirit would you have a seat as i pray father i pray as we move through this that you would help us to see your commands in your word as your heart to help us to not get hurt in this life, to avoid danger in this life, but also as you give us commands to obey, you're also helping lead us into a life of joy and enjoyment and of glorifying you. And so to help us to keep that in mind as we move through this, we need your spirit to help us to understand these things. And so we ask that your spirit would Help our minds to understand what we can't understand on our own, our hearts to believe what we can't believe in our own strength, and to do and apply in our lives what we can't do without your help. We need you to work in and among us this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, all these commands in this chapter and in this entire second half of the letter that we're studying right now fall under the banner of this first commandment that we see right there in first one. Do you see it? Be imitators of God as beloved Children, all right. That word "be" there in the Greek—that's a passive imperative, uh, which is basically saying, you know, it's a—it's a state of ongoing, every day, every moment being. When you see that word "be," that's what he's saying. So basically, what he's saying is, there's a command here from God to be like God, to bear His image, to reflect His character in all areas of my life at all times, uh, every single day. Now, that's—that should feel like a really big command. All right? And we're supposed to feel the weight of it. It's supposed to make us feel weak. It's supposed to feel impossible. And here's why. Because every single day, I need to surrender in a fresh way to the reality that it's just that. 
Every day that commandment over my life should feel impossible because it's a reminder that I can't do it on my own. I can't do it in my own strength. See, here's the plan. By the way, just let me stop here and say, all of us should, if we're Christ followers, should be able to acknowledge that truth. That to imitate God every day in every area of our life, even the mundane everyday areas of our life, is something we cannot do in our own strength. Can everybody say an amen there? All right, if you don't, somebody who's with you who knows you will say it for you. All right, yeah, he can't do it. She can't do it. We all can't do it. All right? It was never God's plan for us to do it in our own strength. It's his will to save us by his power, to raise us to new life by his power. And between here and glory, it's his plan. It's his will. It's his design that we be transformed and become imitators of God and to be conformed more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, not by our strength, but completely and solely by the power of the Holy Spirit in particular at work inside of us. See, it's through the work of his Holy Spirit inside of us that this all happens. It's only as we allow the Holy Spirit to fill us, as we're instructed to do, aren't we, in verse 18, that we experience the power that we need to imitate God in all areas of our life. His Spirit at work in us is the only way it is the only way that it happens. And here's the most significant way. As you think about the Spirit, if you're a Christian, at work in your life this morning, actively at work, here's the most significant way the Spirit works in our lives to help us live lives that imitate God. He gives us the daily power and strength to grow in our knowledge of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Isn't that exactly what Paul prays would happen in the life of the Ephesian church in Ephesians 3? And he prays that because the more, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I grow in my knowledge of God's love for me, the more I'm convinced of my position as a beloved child of God, as it says in verse 1, the more the Holy Spirit helps me To believe more that there are unsearchable gospel riches and treasures and blessings that are mined in Christ Jesus. The more I'm convinced of who I am in Christ as a beloved, greatly loved by God, child of God. Something that this entire first half of this book has established for us. The more I'm going to obey the command to imitate God. Because he's my heavenly father. The more I'm convinced that I'm a beloved child of God, the more I'm going to imitate my heavenly father. The more I grow to understand his love for me, the more I'm going to want to imitate him. Because that's just the way father-child relationships work, isn't it? When you find a child who knows that they're loved by their father, they naturally take on the characteristics of their dad. I remember when my, our first child, Emma, was born. She turned 16 this last week. Crazy. But I remember when she... Was born. That was our first child. And you parents, that's an, that's an amazing moment. When that first baby's born. I, I was a nervous wreck. I didn't know what I was doing. I never. I didn't think I'd ever even held a little baby like that. I've never changed a diaper. I, didn't, I was scared to death. And yet there I am, I'm holding her. And when you see that baby for the first time, it is a surreal, it is an amazing moment. But it's the first moment you see them, but it's not the first moment you loved them. They were loved long before that moment. Where you set eyes on them. You'd already set your heart on them. That you love them first, but then over time as they grow and you demonstrate your love towards them as a loving parent, this amazing thing happens to where it's reciprocal. The kid starts loving you back. Right? They begin to demonstrate their love towards you as their loving parent. One way they do that is they begin to imitate you. That's why Emma is a little three or four year old girl. Had her little kitchen, plastic kitchen set in her room, baking cookies like she saw her mom baking cookies in the kitchen. She's imitating her mom. So I've Benson, three years old. I'm there on uh, the, the chair playing guitar, and he comes in, pulls his little plastic chair over next to me with his little toy guitar, and he's playing guitar right next to me. Max, my eight-year-old, imitates me. Right? The, 
in the morning right now, our breakfast, uh, or kind of the routine is, is I'll eat breakfast and I'll watch a little bit of the news. And the way the school schedule is right now, Max joins me for breakfast most of the mornings. And so uh, we usually just sit there and kind of talk. And again, the news is there in the background. And the other night we were eating dinner and Max put his fork down and he sat across the table to me. He said, Dad, what do we think about this Ron DeSantis guy? You can ask Rebecca, you can ask my family, this happened. And I said, well, why are you asking that? He goes, well, you, you, you know that they're thinking about raising the retirement age to 75. And I said, I'm not, I don't even know if that's real, but where did you hear that? He goes, well, when you, you left the news on the other morning and went off to get ready and I watched it. So there Max is in the morning with his bowl of cereal watching the news. Why? Because he sees his daddy eating his bowl of cereal watching the news. Just the way child parent relationships work. I still find myself imitating my dad. I want to show you a picture of my dad right here. This is my dad. I want to show you him in action right here. I grew up under his preaching ministry. I know I'm biased, but I believe he is the greatest. He's the greatest preacher that I know, not just because he's a dynamic speaker and a preacher and a pastor, but because I saw the man behind the scenes. He's a real deal. And in no way am I saying that he was a perfect dad. He'll tell you he was not a perfect dad. There's no no such thing as a perfect father. Those don't exist. But I'll tell you one thing I knew with absolute certainty about my relationship with my dad, and that's that I was a beloved son. I didn't have to earn my position in my family. And because I was born into that relationship, and because my father demonstrated love towards me as his son, guess what? Today, sometimes, I'm even parenting my kids, and I'll say something. I'm like, man, that sounds like dad. There's ways that I find myself leading, even in this church, where sometimes I'm like, man, I didn't even realize that that was kind of the way I think Dad would have done that. There's sometimes I'm up here preaching, you don't see inside of my mind, but I'm going, that kind of came out the way I think Dad would have said that. I still find myself imitating him. You know why? Because there's a love son in the family, and out of the overflow of a love relationship that I have with my father, I naturally begin to reflect some of his characteristics and his traits. And listen, you can take that picture down. I know some of you in this world, you, are, you don't have a relationship with the earthly father. That, that part of, you don't get to experience something like that. It's a broken relationship or it's an absent father or it's a, an abusive father. But I want you to know something gloriously true about you in Christ Jesus, that you have this. You have a perfect heavenly father Amen. who infinitely loves you, who's placed his spirit inside of your life to keep convincing you of just that, that he loves you. That you don't have to perform for His love. You're accepted into His family through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You are a beloved child. Which means this. That what we see happening naturally in a child's life who is loved by an earthly parent, we should be seen happening supernaturally in our life as a beloved child of God. As we experience a relationship with Him, we should experience a desire to imitate Him and to reflect His character. And to shine His light in this world in a way that makes a difference. And that's what Paul's getting at in this passage. And he gives us three ways that we should be imitating God, our Heavenly Father, as we're growing in an intimate relationship with Him. This text is very clear. It shows us three specific ways we're called to imitate Him. One, as beloved children of light, we are called to walk in sacrificial love. That's how we imitate Him. We're called to love people around us. Now, last week we talked about loving people within the context of the church. That's what Paul was 
I believe, referring to. And this week, he broadens that, and he's kind of talking about how you love people in the world. And it's the same way. We love people in this world in the same way that God chooses to love us. We imitate his love. Well, how does God love us? I love that Paul doesn't just, you know, I'll just use that word love kind of in a loose way. I'll come back in a second on accident. But I love the way Paul doesn't just generally express that we're loved by God. And that's really important because our culture deflates the meaning of love. I just did it. We use love, you know, just very loosely. We throw it around. Hey, I love to eat there. I love that movie. I love this weather this morning. We get a much different, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But we just got to remember that there's a much different standard in the Bible for the love that God calls us to demonstrate than the kind of love that we kind of toss around in our culture. He explains, this is what love is. God's demonstrated love for us so we can see it and study it and understand it. And it's this, He demonstrated His love towards us through sending His Son to lay down His life sacrificially and selflessly for us on the cross. Now that truth right there that we see, right there in the first two verses, Jesus on the cross, dying in our place, loving us, demonstrating His love for us through selfless and sacrificial action. That should give us two things this morning. First, it should give us an assurance of God's love for us, shouldn't it? You don't got to wonder this morning how God sees you. You don't got to wonder how He feels about you. You don't got to wonder if He's for you. Simply look at the cross this morning. Simply look at what Paul is talking about right here. Simply look at the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ. And there you find the undeniable proof that you are loved. You say, well, I don't feel loved this morning. I know I'm saved, but I don't feel loved. I feel like a failure. I feel marginalized. I feel abandoned. You may feel that way, but you don't need to persist in those feelings because that's not true about you. Look at the cross of Christ. It's objective evidence that you are loved by God. God sent His Son to lay down His life sacrificially and selflessly for you so that you can experience a right relationship with Him forever. Let this sink into your heart even more this morning. God loves you in Christ. At the cross, we find assurance for God's love for us. But we also find an example of how we now need to imitate that kind of love in our everyday life. When we look at the cross, we see see God both loving, not just in in feeling and intention, but also in action. That's both selfless and sacrificial. And as His children, we're called to demonstrate, to reflect that same kind of love. That selfless, sacrificial love should be detected in us if we're His kids. It's a love that puts the needs and the well-being of others before our own. It's a love that expresses itself in giving ourselves away for the good of other people. Now, everybody got this down? Everybody good at this? Right? This piece of cake, right? Don't we just naturally, like, you know, yeah, you have the last apple fritter. That's what I kind of have. I was thinking I was going to eat when I got home, but you have it. I'd like to just sit here and, enjoy, and watch you enjoy that instead of me eating it. No, you, you have the last cup of coffee. Yeah, please. I mean, I, I, I didn't have any, had coffee this morning. One Keurig refill. Okay, you have that. I'm just going to sit here and watch you enjoy it. No, please cut me off in traffic. Please do that. I'm sure you're having a bad day. I'm sure you're in a hurry. I'm sure there's a lot going on in your life. Cut me off in traffic. I like it when people do that. No, that's not going to happen, right? This is hard. Why? Because what comes naturally to us is to love ourselves well first. What comes naturally to us is to sacrifice for ourselves first. We're naturally all about our wants and our desires and our needs above others. But Paul says that's not who you are anymore. We belong to a new family. We belong to a new father. He's put a new spirit inside of us. We're new creations in our life. Now orients around a new person. And guess what? That person is not me. It's Jesus who lived his life, laying down his life for others 
selflessly and sacrificially serving others and loving others. That's the way He's chosen to love us. And now that's the way that we're called to love other people. Which, by the way, isn't just a love that we demonstrate through feeling. God didn't do anything for us, just feel in love for us. He demonstrated His love for us. He put it in action. So we're not called to just feel love for people. We're called to put this selfless, sacrificial love in action. We're called to forgive people, to serve others, to share our resources, to meet the needs of others. We're called to spread the gospel. We're called to love people in tangible ways, even people who irritate us and frustrate us. We're called to love and to serve people who are different than me. So the first way we imitate our Heavenly Father is we walk in sacrificial, selfless love. Second way, we imitate our Heavenly Father as beloved children of light as we walk in personal holiness. Look again at verses 3 and 4. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must never, not ever be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Well, what a chipper, fun little collection of verses to go through on a Sunday morning, right? But Paul actually presents unapologetically in the middle of the section a list of convicting exhortations, going back to the beginning of the sermon, that we need. That are for our good. For God's glory, but for our good. So that we can enjoy life. So that we can live a life that leads to the transforming power of the gospel being on display in our life, in the lost world that we live in. Now, this is a similar passage to the one that we looked at last week. Last week, Paul used the metaphor of old outfits coming off, the old way of living that we once wore, us taking it off, putting on new outfits. Right? He switches metaphors in this passage, but it's still in the same vein of thought. He switches from old clothes and new clothes to uh, walking in darkness and walking in the light, to light and darkness. So let me give you some ways that Paul's saying that you don't walk in darkness, that you don't walk in the old way of life, that you don't walk in sin anymore as an imitator of a holy God. How you now instead you walk in light, you walk in holiness. So his first exhortation is this. This is the way we're going to outline it. Walking in holiness means saying no to walking in the darkness of sexual immorality. The Greek word translated into the English word that we have here, the phrase sexual immorality, is the word porneiai. It's, it's basically, it's a word, it's basically like a junk drawer for all sexual sin. So any kind of sexual sin there is goes in this drawer. It's an all-encompassing term. Fornication, pornography, sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, adultery, lustful thoughts, homosexuality. The Bible puts all of those in a drawer and calls it sexual immorality. And Paul says as Christians, isn't it interesting? He says, don't even let that be named among you. Strive to live a life where not even a hint of that is seen in your life. Now, that's not a popular view of sexuality in the culture that we live today. And even in the church, you find people who seem to work hard to try to bend Scripture and find loopholes. But Paul doesn't let us do that. He's very clear right here. He clearly states what the New Testament clearly states. And it's a biblical view of sexuality. And he states this a few times in his epistles that, listen... God's design for sex, that's for our good and for His glory, is that it be experienced within and always within the confounds of a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. And so Paul's telling this church, anything outside of that in thought or deed is sexual sin. He says, don't walk in those things. Now, if you're living outside of these boundaries that Paul's very clear about right here, 
and you're living outside of those boundaries and you're walking in what he calls sin and darkness right here, sexual sin, he points something out here that helps us understand how we can walk out of that darkness and into light. Anytime this kind of sin and darkness, whether it's sexual sin, and it's going to be the same with these other sins that he points out, he, he, he helps us understand that it's always traced back to a heart issue. It's always going to be traced back to a heart problem, a worship problem, an idolatry problem. Anytime that I'm walking in darkness, when I'm flirting with sexual sin, or I'm just, if you were just uh, deep into that type of sin, you have an idolatry problem. Idolatry is taking something, this is what idolatry is. It's, it's, maybe you don't understand this, and this may help you a lot with understanding how to live a life of holiness. Idolatry is taking something that's good, that's a God-given gift, and it's taking that God-given gift, selfishly ignoring God's design as to how you enjoy it, and you taking that, taking it into your own hands, and using it the way that you want in your flesh, trying to seek after and to find fulfillment and satisfaction that you aren't going to find outside of the boundaries that God's created to enjoy that gift within. That's idolatry. So, you need to understand that. And it also makes something really clear right here, right? When we think about idolatry, taking those good gifts and using them in selfish ways. That the Bible isn't anti-sex. We need to be way better at communicating that in our homes to our kids as we're raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. God created it. It's a good gift. Good when experienced within the design that He has given us to enjoy it within, within the covenant marriage relationship between one man and one woman, never outside of those boundaries. Anything outside of those boundaries in my life, in thought, or in deed, is sexual immorality. As a child of God called to imitate the character of a holy God, it's to have no place in my life. Anytime, anytime it creeps in, anytime I creep into those dark places, I should confess that sin quickly. I should confess it as for what it is. It's idolatry. It's worshiping the created over the creator. It's taking the creator, the created, and trying to rule over that in my own way instead of taking the created and putting it underneath the creator's design and enjoying it that way. You call it for what it is in your life. You confess it as sin. And then you relentlessly fight against it. And you flee from it. You don't flirt with it. It shouldn't even be named among you, Paul says. Now, let me say this. You may passionately disagree with what I just unpacked over the last five minutes. And with this size crowd, I'm sure you may be here and feel that way this morning. And, and, and I want to say something. You may have run into people, even though you have a, a view of sexuality that doesn't align with what I just unpacked as a biblical view of sexuality. You may have run into people before because of your position who have talked to you in a judgmental ways or harsh ways unloving ways that have even made you feel less valuable as a human being. I want you to hear my heart. That's not my intention this morning. I want you to know that if you're here, I'm glad you're here. I want you to know I love you. I want you to know that this is a place for you to come and to attend and to learn and to hear what we think about things like this. I'd love to sit down with you and talk with you and to know you and to know your name and to help you understand how I even arrived at Embracing this position. I really wanted to make that clear this morning. And if that's you, love you. Glad you're here. Walking in holiness means saying no to walking in the darkness of sexual immorality. Second exhortation is this. Paul gives us concerning holiness. Walking in holiness means saying no to walking in greed and covetousness. All right? So simply put, these two things together are the insatiable desire for more. 
All right. So, and it's a lot like this. It, it is like the sexual sin issue. It's a matter of the heart. It's a heart issue. Greed and covetousness always springs, even in the life of a Christian, it always springs from a discontented heart that is not trusting in God and is not satisfied in God in this moment. And I'll tell you, we are immersed in a culture that is neck deep in these sins. Desperately looking for lasting satisfaction and happiness in the next new thing. And they think, I, I only need to find that next new thing to, to fulfill me and to satisfy me. Only to find that that next new thing didn't help them find the satisfaction that the last next new thing needed. So they need another new thing. That can't deliver what you're looking for. I need the new car to help bring me some joy and some satisfaction and fulfillment. I need a relationship in order to feel fulfilled and to feel satisfaction. I need this new job. I remember when I was a student pastor, I remember a young man saying, Man, if I could just work at Chick-fil-A, bro, I would be so happy. He said, I mean, I'm working at McDonald's, man. If I could just give me a job at Chick-fil-A, I'd be making $3.50 more. I would have Sundays off. I'd be around all those nice people saying my pleasure all the time. I need to work at Chick-fil-A. And guess what? He got him a job at Chick-fil-A. And not long after that, I remember out of his mouth saying, man, if I could just quit my job at Chick-fil-A, I would be happy. (laughs) How quickly you hate the job that you once loved and thought that you needed in order to be happy. That's true about a lot of things that we chase. Now, this is a struggle that all of us deal with, that all of us deal with in our flesh. But I do need to say that if you're dominated by these things, by insatiable desire for more, this is descriptive of your life and your heart. That's what that is evidence of, is that you're still wandering in darkness. You're still dead in your sin. You're separated from the grace of Jesus Christ. You haven't clouded with the gospel. But believer, listen, you've come to Jesus. We've come to the one who said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest, satisfaction, fulfillment, joy. We've been brought into a union with Jesus Christ who can satisfy every longing of our soul. If I have Jesus, I don't need anything else to make me happy. I don't need anything else to fill me with joy and peace and fulfillment and satisfaction and everything I was looking for out there in the darkness and all the wells of the world that I never was able to find. Do you believe that this morning? Paul says greed and covetousness must not even be named among you. And any time it's named among us, any time there's even a hint of it in our life, what's happened, it's a belief problem in my heart. And I need to ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, help my unbelief. Help me to believe the gospel truth more that you alone satisfy. That I can't find satisfaction in this world. Only you satisfy. Help my heart to believe even more that the treasures I have in Christ are better and beyond all the treasures that I could collect in this world. That's how we say no to the idols of covetousness in our life and walk in holiness. We need to believe gospel truth more. Third exhortation Paul gives concerning walking in holiness and not walking in sin and darkness is this. Walking in holiness means saying no to walking in the darkness of corrupt speech. Verse 3 says, Let there be no filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So last week he talked about putting off corrupt talk. It was kind of specific, you know, not careful about what we say about people and to people within church relationships. But this is, he's saying any corrupt talk here. Any crude joking, foolish talk, speaking vulgarly, using disgraceful language. He says that's not 
what needs to be in your life if you are an imitator of a holy God. And did you notice the medicine Paul gives, that he prescribes right here, that will help weed out filthy and foolish and disgraceful talk and crude joking in your life? He says you need a big dose of thanksgiving. He says, instead, let there be thanksgiving. That's interesting. You would ex- I was ex- expecting, Paul, when you first read that passage, to say, hey, instead of filthy talk, let there be clean talk. You'd expect him to say that. But he said, instead of filthy talk, let there be thanksgiving. And here's why he's saying this, and this is all over this passage, because God is after more than just the way you talk. God is after more than just behavior modification. He's after your heart. All of this darkness that we can flirt with and dabble in and run out into the darkness of sexual sin, greed, and sinful speech are all sins that are traced back to our heart problem, to a worship problem. Paul knows that. Paul knows what we really need, and that's a heart of worship. A heart focused on God. Because he knows that a heart that's regularly practicing thanksgiving, a heart that's stopping and regularly praising and worshiping the Lord, a heart that is Jesus-focused, that's captivated by His grace, that's filled with gratitude for who He is and what He's done, that's a person with a heart posture that's going to lead them to live in a holy life. Of saying no to sin. I could reduce it down to this. If God captures your heart, He's got your life. If God captures your heart, the rest of your life will follow. He's not just after your behavior. He's after your heart. He gets your heart. There's worship happening in your heart. There's gratitude in your heart. What's going to happen as a result of that is holy living and imitating our Heavenly Father. Now, after all that, Paul offers a warning in verse 5. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who's sexually immoral and impure, he's naming these uh, sins or covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. What that does not mean is that Christians can't struggle with these things. Certainly we struggle with these sins. We still have something called the flesh. We're not going to be completely glorified and to completely walk in likeness perfectly in light perfectly like Jesus until we get to heaven. We're going to struggle. But what this is saying is that for those who persist in these sins, that's and have not even a shred of evidence in their heart to walk in holiness that's that's listed right here. He says you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God because there's no evidence that you've ever been raised to new life. So this is a warning to those, again, who have no evidence in their life that you even have a desire to live a holy life. The Bible calls you to repent and to believe. But for the Christian... This warning, what this warning should be is a sobering reminder that a mark of an authentic believer and authentic faith is a sincere desire to pursue holiness. Therefore, we need to pursue holiness. That's who we are. Be careful how you talk. Be careful what you entertain yourself with. Be careful what you look at and lust after. Verse 15, he says this, be careful how you walk. Be careful with the way you live your life. Use the moments and the time that God... You're only promised this moment right here. You're not promised to be here tomorrow. Use today. Use the moments and the time that God has sent, uh, that given you today to live wisely. Not hiding sin, but confessing sin. Bringing sin into the light. Not just into the presence of God. To keep that relationship fresh and intimate, but also into the light with brothers and sisters in Christ who can lock arms with you and pray for you and demonstrate the grace and the truth that you need to help you fight that sin. 
Use the time God gives you today carefully, not coddling your sin, but fighting your sin, not justifying your sin, but denouncing your sin, not minimizing your sin, but mourning over your sin. Use, here it is, use the time that God has given you today carefully and wisely, not walking in darkness, but walking in light, because that's who you are. I love how in verse 8 it says, you are not darkness anymore. This whole book is about us living out who we already are in Christ. And he inserts identity language right here. He doesn't say you're out of the darkness or you're into the light. He says you were darkness. And he says you are now light. So be who you are. You're light, so walk in the light. And very briefly, the third way that we imitate our Heavenly Father is beloved children of light as we shine brightly in a dark world. Verses 8 through 14, what Paul's showing us is he's showing us the result of of imitating God through the first two things we just covered. He's shown us the result of imitating God through gospel-fueled pursuits of holiness and through demonstrating selfless and sacrificial love in our life. What happens? What's the result? We become the effective witnesses in this dark world that He's called us to be. It says in verse 11, He says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. That's like a summary statement of the whole passage, isn't it? But instead expose them. Expose them with your light. Life. Expose them with the light of the gospel shining through your life. So we're learning something here. And lean in and tune in to the next couple minutes of what I'm about to say. Because we learn something here about the way that God's called us as individuals and as a church to engage the lost world that we live in. Some people engage the lost world by withdrawing from it, by isolating from it. Some choose to engage our culture as professing Christians, waging war against it through harsh words and judgmentalism and self-righteousness. Some choose to engage the world by accepting the things of this world and kind of becoming like the world in the name of reaching the world. The problem is, is you don't see any of that any of those options in the New Testament as to how we're supposed to engage with a lost world. Paul points to the way that God desires for us to engage a lost world in darkness. And you know what? It looks a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus didn't withdraw from a lost world. He didn't come and mow people down with truth. He walked in holiness and love and engaged with a lost world relationally. He shined light and He exposed sinful people in their sin and darkness as He engaged them and pursued them lovingly and truthfully. And that's how we engage a lost world. That's how we're called to shine the light of the gospel. He's called us to be light, but He hasn't called us to be spotlights. We're not called to stand from a distance out of the context of relationships of lost people and be some kind of sin search party. That's not what we're called to do. Jesus sat with sinners. He knew their names. He built relationships with them. He hung out with them. He didn't become like them in the world, but not of the world. He had compassion, real compassion for them. Here's the way we can apply this today. We're all familiar with the kind of the culture wars happening in our culture that are going on. We're surrounded by them. culture wars concerning differing views of human, on human life or views of uh, sexuality. We're surrounded by people in our culture, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families who hold the anti-Christian values and views on human life, 
who hold to anti-Christian Romans, one views uh, when it comes to sexuality. And you got all these culture wars going on. And people in the culture fighting these culture wars with politics and yard signs and branding and bumper stickers and all these different things that people in the world use to advance their unbiblical views and agenda that don't align with God's Word. Listen. As children of light, we don't respond to yard signs with yard signs. We don't respond to bumper stickers with bumper stickers. We don't respond to social media memes with our own Jesus juke, drop your mic, Jesus meme. We walk across the street to the person with the yard sign and we talk to them. We talk to our lost neighbors. We walk across the break room and we serve our lost co-workers in the name of Jesus who may not share the same views that we do. Instead of going back and forth on Facebook with a lost family member who you disagree with about certain things in culture or things spiritually, instead of going back and forth aggressively over Facebook, you take them to lunch and you love them and you serve them in the name of Jesus and you walk in light. And in love, you walk in truth and in grace. We engage a lost world in light and love in the context of relationships because that's what Jesus did. We don't engage in a culture war because our war has already been won. And the main way we make a difference in this world is not through big organized campaigns to shut down sin in our culture. It's by shutting down sin in our own life. By walking in personal holiness. By crucifying the flesh and walking in sacrificial love and engaging real people, lost neighbors, lost co-workers, lost families, relationally, loving them sacrificially, loving them selflessly. And as we do that, we get this amazing opportunity to expose the darkness in their life the way that Jesus did. And invite them out of that darkness into the beautiful reality known as the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we walk in light and love, through our words and through our actions, we get to invite them, verse 14, to wake up, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray.